Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1887, Riddick Gatling Jr., formerly of the 33rd North Carolina, asked, Who has ever written a line to tell of the sacrifices, the suffering, and the ending of these more than immortal men? Why has the history of that brigade not been written? He was referring to the Brigade of North Carolina troops commanded by Lawrence O'Brien Branch and James Lane. 131 years later, Michael C. Hardy, the 2010 North Carolina Historian of the Year, would answer by publishing General Lee's Immortals, the Battles and Campaigns of the Branch Lane Brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia, 1861-1865. We'll talk with Michael C. Hardy tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the regular location, the third floor of the Brewster Building, 
on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the Pirates, now ranked in the top 10 nationally in intercollegiate baseball. No one cares about college baseball through much of the world, but when your team's in the top 10, you have to tell people about it, and the Pirates are doing well this year. But I am not speaking for the Pirates, their baseball team, their affiliates, their uh, department, the athletic department, any part of ECU, just for myself. And my guest, likewise, will speak only for himself tonight, as always. It is a balmy April evening here in 2018. Uh, Rainy yesterday, the Pirates were supposed to play North Carolina State, ranked number two, and Pirates are like seven or eight. Would have been a good game, but unfortunately rained out. Uh, Apparently they don't have tarpaulins at NC State because the rain was done by 3 p.m., but they could not somehow get the field dry in time. Uh, Oh, well. Classes are over for the semester. It's quiet. It's uh, reading day. Uh, There are some places, uh, Harvard University, where I once earned a degree for listeners who have forgotten that critical fact about Civil War talk radio. I haven't mentioned it. Uh, often enough this year, uh, that Harvard reading period between the end of classes and beginning of exams was was days, weeks, months, it seemed sometimes. Uh, here, they have one reading day uh, in which people don't read. They sunbathe or return their books to the bookstore or do other things. But it's the nicest day of the year to be in the, the building, in the Brewster building. It's quiet. Faculty are here. We're working on getting exams ready or doing other things, but students aren't around. It's very peaceful. Good day to be here. Well, uh, good day also to be listening to Civil War Talk Radio. We have an interesting show tonight. I wanted to first start by saying thank you to all the listeners who contributed to Civil War Talk Radio over the past several months. In particular, a a quick shout-out to Drew Gruber of uh, Civil War Trails. He's been on the show. You can hear his episode a little while back. Those markers you see throughout the eastern seaboard, he puts them up and maintains them. And he sent me a very nice uh, baseball cap, which if I'm not wearing my Pirates baseball cap, I can now wear a Civil War Trails cap. Uh, Thank you for that. And thank you to another friend of the show, Mark Dunkelman, uh, who has been on the show several times. Uh, I just received today from him his latest publication, Gettysburg's Coster Avenue, the Brickyard Fight, and the Mural. There's a mural there on Coster Avenue when you visit Gettysburg uh, showing what happened during the battle. It's worth seeing next time you're in town. Uh, Make it a point to do that. And uh, you can pick up this very interesting 46-page document that tells about the fight but also about the production of the mural. It's really an interesting-looking piece. I just got it today. Looking forward to reading through it. It looks very good. Uh, You can also learn about Civil War Talk Radio by going to impedimentsofwar.org, as you well know. It's time to send uh, uh, send $5 to Civil War Talk Radio, not because we need the money here, although the funds do help defray the the website costs for impediments of war, but... uh, it would be. It's time to uh, remind everyone working here. That would be uh, me, uh, and also Mark Gaffney, who keeps the the uh, website going, and also uh, uh, Aaron, our engineer. 
reminding us all that you listen to the show. I know from the statistics uh, that many people do, but it's good to get the reinforcement to be part of the Civil War Talk Radio community. And you can do that by sending an email to me. Let me know what, who you'd like to hear on the show, what uh, books you've read that you'd like to hear the author uh, interviewed about, or uh, any other similar, uh, any topic you might have in mind. Or if you are shy of expressing your opinion, a, a token contribution to Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund at civilwartr at aol.com. You can use PayPal or the donation button at Impediments of War. Just something to remind us that you're out there. Uh, again, it's not the quantity of the money, as you know, in the past. Uh, we've had times when we donated uh, your contributions and mine together to uh, Civil War sites, to the Civil War Trust we've done, to uh, uh, to Mark Dunkelman's own organization in upstate New York, preserving a Civil War building, or to Heritage Hall here on the campus of East Carolina University. So it's not uh, the cash, although who knows what I'll do with the cash this time, but it is the, uh, the reinforcement. Let us know you're out there. Uh, Money is always welcome, but just send an email. Uh, they'll, they'll tell you the address three or four times during the show. Uh, let me know you're out there, who you'd like to hear, and that you're uh, gaining some benefit from the show. I gain a benefit. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy talking with you every week. But I, I, I hope it's mutual. Uh, so send us some, some reinforcement to carry us through the final exam period here at East Carolina University. There will, in fact, be no live show next week, uh, May 2nd, because of final exams. But after that, we'll be back May 9th. Uh, Robert Cook from England joins us to talk about his book, and he'll be getting up at some ridiculous hour uh, overseas to contact us. Uh, His book is about Civil War memories, contesting the past in the U.S. since 1865. Then we'll talk about Gettysburg. Tom Huntington returns to the show. He has a wonderful book on looking for General Meade. His new book is Main Roads to Gettysburg, How Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 men from the Pine Tree State helped win the Civil War's bloodiest battle. And then we'll go back on the road, albeit Gettysburg, among other places, with uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours for a week, so no show on the 23rd, but we'll finish up the month of May with Kate Major, who has edited a new edition of John E. Washington's uh, classic uh, short book, They Knew Lincoln, and she's done some other work as well. We'll talk with her on May 30th. So lots coming up. Join us for all of those, hopefully, and uh, look forward to hearing from you. Again, let me know what you like about the show, what you don't like. Some people don't like the lengthy opening monologue. I've, I've heard that more than once over the years, to which my standard response is, then get your own show. Uh, but I don't mean that to, to be uh, as flip as that sounds, perhaps. Uh, others have said they've enjoyed hearing about the adventures of the Greenville Stars U-12 girls soccer team over the years. It's hard to believe the show's been on 14 years. My girls have grown up, gone on to college, and the youngest of them graduates in just a couple weeks from uh, another branch of the UNC system, to be named later. And... Uh, I've enjoyed sharing that with you uh, through these these introductory bits. But what we're here for is to talk about the Civil War, and tonight we're going to learn about 
the Branch Lane Brigade, uh, a unit from the Army of Northern Virginia, one about which apparently not much has been written in the past, but that has been put to rights by our guest tonight, Michael C. Hardy, who we learned from the back of the book was named the North Carolina Historian of the Year in 2010. And that's the first thing I'm going to ask is, how do you get that? Uh, Michael, are you there? Good evening. There, there he is. Michael, evening, how are you doing? Professor. Good to talk to you. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Greetings from the western portion of our great state. So wh- where are you calling in from tonight? I, I live uh, not far from Grandfather Mountain. Oh, so that's, that's for, for non-North Carolinians. How far west is that? Um, from you, about five and a half hours. All right. Well, that, uh, my older daughter lived in Asheville for a couple of years, uh, which is about as far west as you can get, uh, almost. And, almost. And I'm go- actually, in a couple of weeks, speaking to the Civil War Roundtable, Western North Carolina Civil War Roundtable, which is an hour beyond Asheville. Oh, so you can't, that's right. If you, if you head off towards the Tennessee, that's a beautiful, if somewhat thrilling, drive uh, through the mountains to, to get out there. It uh, is, it is. Uh, I know you'll enjoy that. Well, um, let me start by asking about that title. I, I was intrigued to see 2010 North Carolina Historian of the Year, uh, chosen by the North Carolina Association of Historians. I, th- I think I'm a member of that. I think I've spoken at their annual meeting once a few years ago. But uh, how does one get get nominated or chosen uh, as Historian of the Year? That's a, a fantastic question. I had... Um They give um, book prizes every year. They have an annual meeting, and uh, if you've written a book on a North Carolina subject, uh, you can submit your book, and they will pass it around, and it's reviewed and everything. So I had done that several times over the years. And then um, in in early, well, in in June or July of 2010, the president of the group uh, emailed me and wanted to know if I was busy a certain weekend (laughs) <laughs> in October, and uh, I had been nominated to be their annual Historian of the Year and uh, graciously rearranged my calendar so I could go and accept that honor. Uh, it's it's a, mostly a group. Um, I think the actual name is the North Carolina Society of Historians. Uh, okay. It's mostly a group of people in North Carolina who just write North Carolina history. Okay. Well, well, congratulations on that. And looking at your your list of publications, I can see it uh, clearly deserved. Tell us uh, about your your interest in not just the Civil War in North Carolina, but the but this unit in particular, the Branch Lane Brigade. How did that come about? Well, in uh, 1995, I moved to Boone. I uh, had recently gotten married, and my wife was going to grad school at Appalachian State. And I'm sitting in the library. I, I had always been interested in the war and uh, had um, had read a lot and had done reenacting and interpreting work and was sitting in the library at Appalachian State looking for regimental histories. And at that point in time, uh, there were literally a handful of North Carolina regimental histories that had been written by the veterans uh, Underwood's History of the 26th, Mill's History of the 16th. And there was one that had been published since 1965, and that was the Bloody Six. 
and we have all of these great regiments. You know, there's more than 72 Confederate regiments in North Carolina, and nobody was writing about them. So there was a, a regiment uh, partially made up of mountain men uh, known as the 37th North Carolina Troops. Uh, 60% of the regiment came from the mountains. So I found some good local resources, letters, reminisces, and uh, cobbled together a book. And that book, uh, My History of the 37th, was released in 2003. And that's kind of the springboard uh, of my interest in the Branch Lane Brigade. You know, I wrote a book on the Battle of Hanover Courthouse, which was their first fight as a brigade in May of 1862. I've written articles that have appeared in a lot of the, the glossy magazines, America's Civil War and everything, about different battles and fights that they had. But it was that interest in the 37th North Carolina troops that really pushed me toward you know writing that brigade history uh, so many years later. So just uh, for a quick refresher, what name the regiments that are in this brigade? Sure. They are the 7th North Carolina, the 18th, the 28th, the 33rd, and the 37th North Carolina regiments. Okay. So, And, and there have been some individual regimental histories, and you, you were one yourself, but nothing about the brigade as a whole uh, until your work here. This is a good time, and we'll, we'll take a quick break here. We'll come back in just a minute and find out about where this brigade was formed, uh, who was in it, uh, and, and we'll spend the rest of the hour talking through their illustrious career in the Army of Northern Virginia. Our guest tonight is Michael C. Hardy. He's the author of General Lee's Immortals, The Battles and Campaigns of the Branch Lane Brigade in the ANV, 1861-65. to I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael C. Hardy, author of General Lee's Immortals, The Battles and Campaigns of the Branch Lane Brigade, unit in the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, so, Michael, where where does the Branch uh, Lane Brigade, or who is Branch, and, and where does his brigade come from? Well, his brigade came from all over the state. Uh, there were companies from the Wilmington, New Hanover area, all the way to uh, the mountains uh, here in the western part of the state. Uh, brigade was officially created on March 30th of 1862, and tapped to command was Lawrence O'Brien Branch. He was everything that military men hated. Uh, he was a, uh, had been kicked out of the University of North Carolina, uh, had finally graduated from what is now Princeton University. He was a lawyer. He was a railroad president. And worst of all, he was a politician from a family of politicians. And there are um, a few letters passed back and forth uh, between a couple of the different colonels, uh, talking about how bad they don't like Branch. Uh, and uh, there are some letters from the ranks, men in the ranks, about, you know, they just, they think some of the West Pointers, like Colonel Reuben Campbell of the 7th, should have been promoted to command the brigade and not, not a politician with no military experience. Now, he did have uh, military experience in the sense that he commanded troops at the Battle of New Bern, uh, earlier in 1862, out here in the east of North Carolina, and uh, his, his troops ran from the battlefield. Uh, they, they were driven out. Uh, it was not a very auspicious start for his military career. No, and uh, they, they, the troops in the ranks all knew that, and um, just just a lot of resentment toward him. And that filtered over a little bit to, to the pol- um, political sphere, too, W.W. Uh, w. Holden who was editor of one of the state's newspapers, um, terribly disliked Branch, uh, thought that you know he was ill-suited to command and, and also wished that other folks had been promoted in his stead. So he gets command of the brigade, and uh, they spend a few weeks down in the Kinston area, and then Robert E. Lee starts to uh, pull troops from various places, the Confederate War Department, to combat McClellan, and off Branch's brigade goes to Virginia. Uh, the 1st of May of 1862. Uh, you said you've written a book about the Battle of Hanover Courthouse. That was their first major action there. How did that go? They didn't go uh, very well either. <laughs> uh, Branch uh, was 
faced against once again against overwhelming odds. Uh, he was fighting a large element of Fitz John Porter's Fifth Corps, and um, Fitz John Porter didn't do very well in the battle either. He always believed that Branch's forces were up near the courthouse, and instead they had pulled back um, a, a day or so before. Uh, in the vicinity of Slash Church, uh, just a little to the west of Slash Church. And Branch had sent the 28th Regiment off to um, reinforce the picket post, and the 28th Regiment got cut off. And Branch attempted to send other regiments in to rescue them. And Fitz John Porter finally figured out that he was wrong. The Confederates really were in his rear and turned a large portion of his men around and um, pushed Branch's forces back off the field, and they retreated back to Ashland. So that did not go well, uh, but they, they Lee can't do without this brigade. I mean, he doesn't have troops to spare. It's not like he's going to send them back to North Carolina. Uh, so they end up uh, next to, at the seven days, and, and this, it seems like here's sort of a turning point for them. I, I think the turning point probably came... Oh, a month or so earlier when the Confederate War Department created some new divisions, and uh, wow. one of those divisions is uh, placed under the command of A.P. Hill, and mm-hmm. Branch's Brigade is one of the early additions to the Light Division. And Branch had kind of alluded um, in some letters home about how, you know, he looked forward to not being in command, you know, sole command on a battlefield. And uh, once... Um, Branch's Brigade became a part of the Light Division, it really became a, a good fighting force. Uh, it seems that any time um, as we go on past the seven days, and they were involved a little bit in Mechanicsville, uh, they were involved at Fraser's Farm, and um, various roles there. But as we go on into 1862, any time that there is a hole to fill, it seems that Branch's Brigade is uh, the brigade that is up next and fills that hole. Newspaper editor in 1862 uh, wrote in that they were um, creating uh, quite a reputation for themselves, and if they didn't stop being so brave, there wouldn't be any of them left to celebrate that reputation, a dangerous reputation at the end of the war. Well, that certainly comes out in, in reading your account. Uh, in, at, in the second days that they're at Glendale or Fraser's Farm, and as, as I was reading, every time you'd mention an individual's name, in the next paragraph, there'd be a description of how he was wounded or killed in action. And I began picturing these guys as all wearing red shirts on Star Trek. They're, every time one of those red shirt guys shows up, you know they're, gonna, they're not going to make it. Um, there were like 30% casualties in the unit uh, in, in uh, June of 1862. Yes. Um, and, and they lose um, Reuben Campbell that I mentioned a minute ago. He's mm-hmm. killed. Uh, Colonel Charles C. Lee, the 37th, is killed by an artillery blast. Uh, James H. Lane is wounded. You know, it's just, you know, a, a horrific amount of casualties um, for this group of Tar Heels. And uh, um, that goes on, you know, pretty much for the duration of the war. You know, this, this staggering amount of losses. Uh, that the men suffer, that the brigade suffers. Now, when officer, when an officer goes down, you need to choose a new officer. So th- let me ask this question. How do they choose replacements, or how did they choose officers to begin with, uh, other than Branch being appointed 
uh, by the state government. Well, your um, your your men get together. Your your men in a local community get together, and they have usually somebody from the community, a, a doctor or a lawyer or a merchant, has received permission from the governor to raise a company, and they get together and they elect their captain and their lieutenant. And that company is is usually shipped off to some recruiting camp someplace. And once there are ten companies from wherever at that recruiting camp, um, they are given permission to form their regiment, and so they elect their colonel, lieutenant colonel, and major. And that is approved by the governor. And um, when there's a call or a need, uh, that regiment is shipped off to some place to fight to join the regular army. So in... um, say, the battle uh, where Charles C. Lee is killed there in the seven days, Colonel Lee of the the 37th Regiment. Uh, After he is killed, the lieutenant colonel, William Barber, steps into that position, but he still has to be officially approved uh, by the War Department to become colonel of the 37th. So um, that's a little bit about the way it works. It changes Mm -hmm. a little over time, uh, but early war, you know, everybody, everybody was elected. Uh, James H. Lane was not even present when he was elected Colonel the 28th. He was serving as a major and a lieutenant colonel in the 1st North Carolina Volunteers and had fought at the Battle of Big Bethel and then gets word that he had been elected Colonel the 28th. And he didn't know any of these people. He was from Virginia. Hmm. Uh, Just happened to be teaching at the North Carolina Military Institute in Charlotte at the beginning of the war and was quite shocked that he'd been elected to this position. But somebody had obviously heard his name. So he joins. Uh, so he joins the, the brigade, uh, which they say fought at the, the Seven Days. They they go on. They fight at Cedar Mountain and Second Bull Run. Let me change gears for a second. And ask you a, question, a historian's question: What kind of sources did you find in your research for this? What what what's out there that helped you uncover the story of this brigade? Um. A lot of time, you know, you, you hit the normal repositories. You know, I was at the uh, State Archives in Raleigh, and there are letters and diaries there. Uh, the Southern Historical Collection at Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill. There's stuff at Duke University. Um, went to the various offices um, of the National Park Service there in Richmond and in Fredericksburg. But one of the things that I really like to do is to try and dig a little deeper um, I, when I first started working on the book on the 37th Regiment, there was a website uh, that no longer is functioning, but it was called GenForum. Uh, and it was a genealogy site, and I posted all 2,000 members of that regiment asking and looking for information. And I got um, photographs, and I got uh, letters and diaries and things that are not in public repositories. And at the same time, I go to a lot of libraries and dig through historical society newsletters and um, family histories, trying to find those letters and those documents that really I've never been tapped. So uh, I use a lot of the traditional resources, but I I try and dig really deep uh, to find those little details. Uh, I often joke that, you know, my research life comes two sentences at a time. I'll find two sentences about some subject, you know. Uh, that some soldier has left that's been passed down through his family and try and see if it's true or see if it's not true. Uh, so those are those are some of my habits there. Okay. The the, uh, the book does have a lot of images, a lot of photographs of 
uh, members of the regiment scattered throughout. has excellent maps by Hal Jesperson. Uh, listeners, if you've read anything about the Civil War published in the last 10 years, you've probably seen some of his maps there uh, among the best uh, tactical maps you'll, you'll find anywhere, and they're very good in this book as well. The uh, you, you said a minute ago that the brigade was developing a dangerous reputation. It was always being put in the hottest place. Uh, Second Bull Run is a good example of that. They were they were defending uh, they were with with Stonewall Jackson defending the railroad line. Uh, tell us about their experience at that battle. Uh, they were they were on the uh, far Confederate left um, originally in the second line of Jackson's defenses there. Uh, the 28th and the 33rd had been sent off further to the left. And as the battle is going on, Jackson's front lines are starting to waver. And Branch leads um, the 37th and the 18th and the 7th. N- not as a brigade movement uh, so much, but as an individual regiment. He would take that regiment and he would plug it right there into line. Uh, he recalled the 28th, even though they didn't quite wind up where he wanted them to. Uh, he recalled them from the far left, and they came up and plugged a hole in the line. And um, very quickly, you know, as these uh, regiments are going online, um, the fighting is intense. Uh, the men are running out of ammunition after just only a, a few moments on the firing line. And there are uh, one great account by a soldier named Walter Lenore, and, you know, it's everything he can do to keep his men in line and to keep them fighting because, you know, they're, they're wanting to fall back, to retreat, to get off of that firing line because it is so hot. But, you know, Branch is there physically. Uh, there's a great story about him. Uh, there was a soldier having trouble, a new soldier having trouble loading his rifle, and Branch takes it and, you know, rams that round all the way down possibly using a rock and hands it back to the soldier so you know he's right there in the front lines in the hottest part of the fighting um they're at second manassas and, and probably really helped and in a lot of these accounts you know branches brigade lane's brigade uh does make a difference um going back a couple of weeks you know you have the battle of uh, cedar mountain or cedar run and Jackson's left is starting to falter, and some of his regiments are starting to fall back. And Branch's brigade is coming up the road and deploys and, uh, and moves forward and pushes the Federals out of the woods and across the field and helps secure the line and possibly takes that battle from a maybe a Confederate loss uh, to a Confederate victory. Well, they now the same thing will happen in a sense uh in a, a fashion a very dramatic fashion at antietam uh in in uh, september of 1862 i was interested uh, reading your book to be reminded that ap hill ran afoul of stonewall jackson his commander over some one of these issues of honor that the confederate generals are always quarreling over and uh Jackson puts Hill under arrest, which means uh, Branch actually became division commander temporarily. Uh, yes, he did. I, I'm guessing and, he didn't um, like that much. And Branch actually um, complimented Branch, or I'm sorry, Jackson actually complimented Branch about how his orders, you know, were being carried out promptly and everything. And, um, you know, we don't know if Hill actually knew about that at the time period, but if he did, it had to gall him to no end. Um, between Hill, you know, that feud between Hill and Jackson. And Jackson feuded with a lot of people. 
Pretty much, uh, it wasn't, yes. It wasn't just A.P. Hill. Uh, but but right before, you know, you know, Hill gets restored to command. Uh, they capture Harper's Ferry, and uh, the Light Division is left in Harper's Ferry, or the rest of the Army goes off to fight at, at Antietam. And uh, Lee sends a note for Hill to bring up the Light Division, and Branch's Brigade is a part of, of that force. And as they arrive there on the slopes uh, overlooking Antietam Creek, um, Jack, or Branch's men go into the fight, uh, three of the regiments, and do really well. And then late in the day on uh, that September day, Branch is killed. Um, some folks say it was a sharpshooter. Um, it was, I mean, it was dark, and it was probably just some federal soldier who saw a clump of officers and fired into it. At least that's what I kind of believe about the matter. So the the division arrives, including Branch's brigade, in time to turn the tide to save uh, Lee's army from being cut off and losing Sharpsburg and the route back to the Potomac. Uh, but the brigade loses its commander. So uh, James Lane, uh, who mentioned a minute ago, takes over. Uh, give us a 30-second sketch of, of who he is, and then we'll take another break. Okay. Uh, Lane was born in Matthews County, Virginia. Uh, he was a graduate of uh, the Virginia Military Institute, had studied under Jackson, uh, had attended the University of Virginia, and before the war had kind of bounced around the various schools um, teaching. And in 1860, he's at the, the Military Institute in Charlotte uh, when the war starts and uh, serves in the 1st Volunteers, 1st North Carolina Volunteers, and then the 28th Regiment. And he will join, uh, so he joins the brigade, as do a number of conscripts under the Conscription Act, uh, bringing the brigade up to strength for the Fredericksburg campaign. Uh, we'll take another short break. We'll come back and find out more about the uh, the very fateful year of 1863 for the Branch Lane Brigade. When we come back, talking today with Michael C. Hardy, author of General Lee's Immortals, The Battles and Campaigns of the Branch Lane Brigade. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Michael C. Hardy, author of General Lee's Immortals, The Battles and Campaigns of the Branch Lane Brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia, 1861-1865. We just talked about the Battle of Antietam. Uh, I want to ask next about maybe the most dramatic event the brigade was ever involved in at the Battle of Chancellorsville. But let me point out, one of the things that makes this book particularly interesting is the narrative uh, is not just one darn battle after another, as uh, some Civil War books tend to be, but this is, there are interspersed sections talking about uh, medical care in the brigade or camp life, what a day in camp is like, uh, and so on, that, that tell you a little bit more about the, the soldier's experience as well as the, uh, the actual narrative. Uh, and, and I'll ask you about that in a second, Michael. But uh, Chancellorsville, 1863, the brigade being in, in Hill's division, part of Jackson's wing of the army, means they're part of Jackson's famous flank attack. And, and we we just uh, talked to an author about the 11th Corps, who wrote a book on the 11th Corps a few weeks ago. So listeners have fresh in their minds the trauma of Jackson's attack on the 11th Corps uh, at the Battle of Chancellorsville. After the attack goes in, night falls, and uh, the brigade is on the front line. Uh, what what was the sequence of events that happened at that point? Well, you know, there was no battle that haunted James H. Lane like Chancellorsville. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote, he lost a brother at that battle. You know, there, there's the deal with Jackson. Um, he, he wrote more about Chancellorsville after the war than any other event. Uh, it's dark. Uh, they're there in the woods. And... Um, you know, Jackson Lane has just gone back looking for Hill for orders. He has his brigade deployed. Uh, he's supposed to be conducting a night attack, and he has gone back uh, looking for Hill to get final orders or clarification about his, what's, what he's supposed to do, and he runs into Jackson, and uh, Lane asks Jackson for orders, and uh, Jackson basically says, push right, push right ahead, Lane. And so Lane rides off to the right of his line to get his men moving, and Jackson rides out in between the lines, and uh, there's some some um, skirmishing going on. Uh, the 33rd Regiment has been deployed as skirmishers, and they're they're um, firing at the Federals, and the Federals are firing back. On the lane's right is his 7th Regiment, and they have just captured the majority of the 128th Pennsylvania. And they can hear other Federal soldiers out there, and with the skirmishing in the front, 7th Regiment fires off a volley, and the 37th Regiment fires off a volley. And then it comes to the 18th Regiment. And uh, the colonel has um, heard all of this going on, has ordered his men to fix bayonets and to load, and somebody cries out, Calvary, and uh, the 18th fire off a volley, and then somebody else cries out in front of them to stop firing, you're firing at your own men. And Major uh, John Barry of the 18th says it's a lie poured into him and the 18th fire off another volley and mortally wound Stonewall Jackson uh, take out several members of A.P. Hill staff 
uh, members of, of um, Jackson's staff. And um, it's an event that uh, will haunt the brigade um, for the rest of the war. And, and even historians today uh, sometimes talk about James H. Lane and about how that killed his chance of promotion later on during the war. Uh, that may be true. Uh, I think there's evidence um, that would say otherwise, but um, it was an event that haunted Lane. I mean, he, he the only battlefield that I can ever find Lane at after the war is Chancellorsville. He's there in September of 1894 with Augustus Hamlin. Um, that's the only field I ever found that he visited. So, so the the brigade is right there. That that's the brigade that fires the the fatal volley that mortally wounds Stonewall Jackson. Uh, once again, they're they're in at a key point uh, of the action. Um, this at Gettysburg, uh, we have the same thing. They're they're not too heavily engaged on the first and second day, but on the third day. Uh, it's time for Pickett's charge, and they're not in Pickett's division. How do they end up in being in the charge? Well, um, it's not only Pickett's men uh, who are involved on that charge on July 3rd. You know, we here in North Carolina um, cringe when people call it Pickett's charge. Uh, we, we prefer either Longstreet's assault or the Pickett-Pettigrew-Trimble charge. Uh, Pickett's division is on the right. Uh, the division uh, under the command of Pettigrew on day three is on the left, and two of the four brigades of the light division, uh, including James H. Lane's, is stacked behind Pettigrew's division. And uh, they they are witness to the bombardment, and then the order comes to charge, and they move across that field. Um, Pettigrew's division, you know, gets to the Emmitsburg Road and that fence, and, and that, that basically destroys their... Their formation, some of uh, Pettigrew's men charge. Lane's brigade comes up, and uh, Lane has ordered his men, his brigade, to oblique to the left. And Trimble, uh, Isaac Trimble, who's in charge of those two brigades, uh, have ordered the brigade to push right ahead, to push forward. And it splits the brigade. Uh, One and a half regiments move forward, and the other three and a half regiments move to the left. Um, and not long thereafter, uh, orders come back. Lane kind of figures it out on his own, but orders come back for whatever's left of the attacking force to fall back to the woods. And Lane said his men were the last organized troops on the field. That's, you know, um, they probably weren't all that organized, but uh, looked good on his official report. Well, that, that that's when you read the OR, everybody says uh, the unit on the left and right both fell back, and my men withdrew in good order. Uh, that's right. Yeah, we're always the last one out. Uh, say a, a, a few words about a day in the life of, of a soldier in this brigade. You you have a very interesting chapter about camp life. Uh, what's a typical day like when you're not fighting a great battle? Well, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is is not only talk about the history of the brigade, but to talk about how a brigade worked, or sometimes mm-hmm. didn't work. And the um, almost 9,000 men who served in the Branch Lane Brigade were not under fire every single day of their wartime existence. They spent an enormous amount of time in camp. 
uh, you know, they would be, um, the drum or the bugle would wake them up in the morning. They had to fall out for roll call, for sick call. Uh, they had to um, cook food or go get rations. Uh, they enjoyed those boxes from home that they were always asking for in their in the letters that they wrote. Um, a lot of times you had drill, uh, at least early in the war, a couple of times a day, maybe three times a day. You would drill, and um, by companies or by platoons. Uh, after that, you know, was dinner call, and then that afternoon you would drill some more, and then at night you had a couple of hours free time uh, where you could write letters home. Uh, they played games. They uh, were um, there were some theatrics that went on. Uh, you know, they would read books anytime they had free time. And then, you know, it was time to go to bed, and uh, it was a, a very boring and monotonous uh, life. Um, there are uh, a few accounts of some exciting things, like the snowball battles. Uh, <laughs> just about everybody who's read about the Confederate armies uh, have read about the snowball battles, and Lane's brigade was right there in the midst of them. Occasionally, you would be marched out um, for some poor soldier to be watch him to be executed, for desertion or some other infraction. It, it, it was pretty boring to be a common soldier in Lane's brigade or, or probably pretty much any brigade, uh, north or south, in that time period. I, I think and I said that's the real strength of the book is that it, it points out what, what goes on besides just the, the moments of high drama. Uh, by 1864, I, I was interested to learn that when the Overland Campaign begins, uh, the campaign that starts in May of 1864, the Battle of the Wilderness, through the return of wounded men and, and uh, conscripts joining the ranks and so on, that uh, this is the largest brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia at that time, 20, 2,350 men. That was a surprise. That, that's, that's, I was surprised by that, too. Uh, and uh, they, they, would, they would pay for it. Even though, you know, we talk about 2,300 men, um, that still only have strength. Right. If each regiment had their complement of 1,000 men, which, of course, they never did after the, the first days of the war, um, a, a five-regiment brigade should have 5,000 men in it. Uh, so at 2,300, 2,400 men, they're still only 50% strength. Uh, but, you know, they pay for that. Uh, they're, they're heavily evolved in the Battle of the Wilderness. They're actually pushed back uh, early that morning. Uh, on the second day of the fight, uh, both Lane had gone to his new division commander, Cadmus Wilcox, and said, shouldn't we reorganize our men? And Wilcox eventually said no, and then Wilcox became convinced and went back to Hill, and Hill said no, Longstreet will be up. And Longstreet didn't make it in time. And Lane's brigade was one of the Confederate brigades that got pushed off the field. Well, they, they, they suffer in that battle. Uh, a month later, Lane himself will be wounded in action, uh, removed from command. Uh, the the story of the Overland campaign is a grim one for all the units on both sides that participated. Uh, we won't go into it here with just a few minutes left. They end up uh, fighting then in the, the Petersburg campaign. And uh, if any listeners, if you've had a chance to go to the, the Pamplin Park, uh, the, the private Civil War Museum and Battlefield Park near Petersburg, uh, if you haven't gone, make it a point to go. It, it's just a wonderful facility. 
and it works in close cooperation with the National Park Service and their protected lands of the Petersburg battlefield. But as, uh, as, as you know, Petersburg is the great siege that brings the war in the East to a close, essentially. And when Lee's line is finally stretched thin to the breaking point, the Union assault that breaks the line falls on which unit? It's the branch line brigade. Okay. <laughs> it, it, as I read this book, it was like um, a sort of Forrest Gump of, of Confederate brigades, that they're there at every important moment. They're throwing rocks uh, at, at Second Bull Run. Uh, when they run out of ammunition, that's the illustration you have on the cover, famous image of, of troops uh, uh, defending themselves that way. They, they're the ones who shoot Stonewall Jackson. They're in Pickett's Charge. They're the unit that is the point of the attack at Petersburg. Uh, it, it's just a, really an amazing story and, and certainly uh, one that deserved to be told. And, and, and I'm glad that you've, you've done so. This book is very uh, interesting. In just the last minute, let me put you in the Civil War time machine quickly and ask if you could go back uh, into this era for 30 minutes in complete safety, who would you want to talk to and, and, and why? Uh, I would like to um, show up right before uh, the Battle of Mechanicsville in um, June of 1862, because I have huge questions about the flags of the brigade. I have one uh, junior officer who writes that um, Branch's brigade had received new battle flags right before the battle, um, before seven days started, and I can't find any of those flags. Um, we know where the December 1862 flags they got are. So, you know, I'd just like to show up right before that battle uh, and spend a few minutes looking at the regiments just to see what they're carrying at that point in time. That, that is and, of course, you know, I talked to Branch and Lane and, and Lee <laughs> and all of those folks, but that, that's where I would head. That that is truly a, a reenactor or a, a miniature wargamer's answer. I want to know. I want to get the flags right. Uh, I, I want to see what they are. I, I totally uh, relate to that. Well, uh, we we don't know about that, but we do know about a lot of the flags, and you've got images of a lot of the flags that are in the North Carolina Museum of History collection. Uh, yes. We do know the fate of a lot of them, and they're illustrated here. But uh, to see that, listeners, you've got to get the book. It's called General Lee's Immortals, The Battles and Campaigns of the Branch Lane Brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia, 1861 to 1865. The author is Michael C. Hardy. Michael, thanks so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. It was a pleasure, sir. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.